Morning everyone, welcome to this uh, seminar on IP and tax. Um, for those of you who maybe I'm Paul Garland, I head up the IP team here and joined today by uh, Mike, in our, uh, who's our tax partner, uh, sitting down here, and Susie on my right, who's on the IP team, uh, take you through this session. Um, just a quick plug for the uh, next, next uh, seminars we've got coming up. There's a couple of employment sessions, um, one about regulation, the other about sickness. Um, and then in uh, June, we've got another one of these corporate council forums on uh, social media. So um, if you haven't had emails on that or, or interested, um, more details on, on the website. So today we're talking about IP and, and tax um, and the way they interact, um, looking at IP particularly from, from every stage in the life cycle. So the creation, the exploitation, the acquisition, maybe the disposal of IP. And at each of those stages in the life cycle, there will be specific tax opportunities, challenges, um, and choices that you can make. So there's a lot of, particularly UK and, and around other jurisdictions around the world, schemes where you can take advantage of uh, innovation, credit, um, tax-efficient structures, and the like. So um, what we're going to do today is, is go through that, and we're going to split it up into those sections of generating and acquiring IP, and how tax applies to that, then looking at the commercialization of it and what structures you can use to make that most efficient from a tax point of view. And finally, some more complicated group arrangements, IP holding companies, international groups, etc. Um, we'll have time at the end for questions, but um, do do wave your hand up at any point if, if something's not clear or you want to want to make a point or, or a question during, during the session. Um, so I'm going to pause there and hand over to Susie, who's going to kick off on the uh, generating and acquiring section. Um, as Paul said, I'm an associate in the intellectual property team, so I can freely admit that my uh, expertise lies in the IP side rather than the tax side. So today I'm going to talk about how the intellectual property is dealt with under the tax legislation, and then also talk about how intellectual property is generated or acquired within a business. So from looking around the attendee list today, I believe most of you are already familiar to some extent with intellectual property rights. So I'm not going to go into great detail on those. Um, but for ease of reference, I've just flagged up some of the key IP rights on this slide. And the important points to note there are that we are covering unregistered and registered rights. And also the point that different IP rights are clearly going to be much more relevant for different types of businesses. So a company which makes its money from um, recording and exploiting data related to financial services, for example, will be more, more interested in database right and copyright than a company which is selling uh, consumer goods, which might be more interested in trademarks. Confidential information and know-how, however, are going to be relevant for all businesses. Okay, so that's intellectual property as we IP lawyers normally approach it. But how does it fit within the tax legislation? The key act for this purpose is the Corporation Tax Act 2009, Part 8 in particular. And on this slide, I've set out three key terms and how they're dealt with under the Act. So the important point to note here is that intellectual property is treated as an intangible asset, and also in the context of a company's operations, it can also be an intangible fixed asset. The other point to note is that when we're talking today about IP, we are talking about registered and unregistered rights. We're also talking about rights in other countries. And we're talking about confidential, confidential information and know-how. Lastly, goodwill is also covered by Part 8. So just to re-emphasize that point, that we're talking here about the breadth of rights, 
um, as opposed to a narrow selection. And the way the tax legislation approaches IP can feel a little bit alien for IP lawyers because we like to approach situations by narrowing it down and splicing it up into specific rights, whereas the approach in this context is a little bit more generalist. Okay, so now we know how the tax legislation defines intellectual property. I just want to talk about how IP can be generated or acquired within a company. Broadly speaking, there are three ways in which IP accumulates within a company. The first is where the IP is produced by the company itself. And this covers a full spectrum of, of rights generation. So, for example, a software company which writes the code for the product it sells, all the way through to a specialist research and development centre whose primary focus is to generate technology for the company. Research and development is defined for tax purposes in accordance with UK GAAP, and it relates to projects which achieve an advance in science or technology. An important point to note there is that advance needs to be in general terms across the industry, not just for the advancement of the company's own knowledge about a particular area. And Mike's going to talk a bit about taxation of R&D projects in a moment. The second way in which IP can accumulate within a company is by being licensed in from third parties. So identifying that a third party has a technology that is particularly useful um, for the business, rather than reinventing the wheel to redefine it itself, um, to license it in from elsewhere. And the third way in which it can be accumulated is through acquisition, whether that's through buying an entire business which has its own IP assets, or buying the IP asset on its own. Just more generally, it is worth bearing in mind that within a company, there's going to be a wide range of IP assets. They aren't just going to be focused on the crown jewels or the primary product. For example, there may be customer lists, databases, etc., which are not necessarily the first things that spring to mind when you think of the IP within the business. Mike's now going to talk about how the IP assets are dealt with under the taxation regime. Yeah, thanks, Susie. Um, hi, I'm Michael Cashman. I'm the tax partner here at, here at Kent Little, as, as Paul mentioned. And what I'd like to chat through now in the course of, course of our talk today is, to an extent, it's the life cycle of IP within a company. It starts with you're creating your IP, you're acquiring your IP, you're then exploiting your IP. Ultimately, you might sell your IP and the various issues that come up along the way in that, in that journey. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit later on about IP holding companies, some of the issues that you will consider in thinking about whether to establish an IP holding company or not, and also some IP holding company jurisdictions. Uh, there's quite a few around the world that are very keen to have your business. So as a starting point with developing IP, uh, creating self-produced IP. The key issue really is you want to obtain a deduction, a tax deduction for the costs that you incur. Now generally you should get a deduction either under the general tax principles or alternatively under one of the specific regimes relating to R&D tax reliefs. Uh, if I look firstly at the general principles, the general principles are fairly simple. The tax treatment basically follows the accounting treatment. And accounting treatment for these purposes, HMRC will accept GAAP or they will accept IAS. So very, very, very broadly for direct costs, you get a deduction as the costs are incurred. And that will include direct costs such as staff costs, the cost of materials, etc. 
And one point to note is that the, the deduction should be available even if ultimately you don't develop any IP from that particular piece of work. I, even if your R&D project is unsuccessful, you should still get your tax deduction under general principles. Now, some expenditure will be capital in nature, and under general principles that won't be deductible. It'll be amortizable, and you'll get your tax relief on the basis of the amortization in the accounts. And I try to think of a couple of examples here. The, the easiest example is probably machinery. Uh, you, would, you would amortize that. Uh, capital, capital allowances. And another one good example might be where you're, you're building a website, your company website. And you've really got to think of your website as your shop front for your business. And the costs of sort of the nuts and bolts of building the website are likely to be capital expenses. But the cost of your content, of course, should be a revenue expense and, and that should be deductible. Now, a company can conduct R&D activities itself, uh, but generally you'll find that in a group of companies, uh, a company might pay, might hire another company effectively to do the R&D work for it. There might be, in for example, a group R&D facility which is used by various companies throughout the group. Now, when an entity hires another group company, the transfer pricing rules, which we'll talk about a little more later, require that the company doing the work is adequately remunerated. So it has to be adequately rewarded for the work that it does on an arm's length basis. This is particularly true where you've got an R&D group facility. And what you find in many cases is that the basis for rewarding your, your R&D company is a contract which is done on a cost plus basis. So you pay your cost, you then add a markup to represent the profit. Uh, 7.5%, 10%, 12.5%. I'm sure you've all come across it. Now, this is quite simple and can in many cases work quite well. But in some cases it doesn't work particularly well. And it can come up with some rather unfortunate consequences. Now, an example of this was a job we did for a company uh, which was a US company involved in developing a diabetes drug. It was doing its clinical trials and its research work in the UK. So it set up a UK subsidiary to do the work. US company came along. They showed me the most wonderful intercompany agreement, which covered everything you would expect an intercompany agreement to cover. It uh, provided for a cost plus basis of remuneration. UK company did the work, made a profit, paid tax on the plus piece. All works well and good. The bad bit, though, was that this company was paying tax at a time when it actually had no product to sell. So before it could even make any revenue, could earn revenue, it somehow ended up with a tax bill. In addition, it was an early stage company. It was a, develop a developing company. So its cash flow was taking a, quite a severe hit by the fact that it was paying tax at a time when it, it had no revenue stream. It might never, ever have a revenue stream. And they came along and said, well, what can we do? We're, we're, we're sort of hemorrhaging money to the UK government for no good reason here. So in situations like that, you can look at alternative forms of remuneration for your, your R&D company. And what we ended up doing was basically providing remuneration in the form of uh, an ownership in some of the rights that may be developed going forward. 
So the UK company ended up owning the rights to exploit the product in the UK. The US company owned the rights for the rest of the world. Uh, we went along to HMRC and they, they were quite happy with that arrangement. They were quite happy to sign off on that. So that was a good result for that particular company. They got no cash up there, no upfront tax bill, and it helped their cash flow tremendously. So it's important when you're doing your R&D activities to think about you know, the consequences of any structuring that you do uh, along those lines. Now, one alternative you might, you might think about is rather than one company engaging another to perform R&D activities, the companies could enter into a cost-sharing arrangement. Now, cost-sharing arrangements work quite well, and essentially what happens is one, two or more companies will contribute towards the cost of the R&D, and then each of the companies will own certain of the rights which are developed, and they will own those rights from inception. Now, that avoids any potential cost, tax costs arising on a subsequent transfer of the IP, and also removes the need for the intergroup charges that we've talked about. Now, what's important about cost-sharing arrangements is it's important that the rights owned by each company reflect their contribution to the cost-sharing arrangement. Uh, we acted for a uh, software company in the US that set up a Bermuda uh, company to do R&D work with it. The US company paid 99% of the cost. Bermuda company paid 1%. US company, as you might not be surprised to guess, ended up with very few of the rights developed, and the Bermuda company ended up with a vast amount of the rights. Uh, the US tax authorities, surprisingly, weren't very happy about this, and basically refused to accept the structure. So it's important that the, right, you, you, that the rights each company receives reflect its contribution to the cost-sharing arrangement. I think the other point that's important going forward is that it's important to structure your cost-sharing arrangements and your documentation properly so it achieves what you want to achieve. And by way of example on this one, we did an acquisition of a company for a client which had entered into a cost-sharing, its group had entered into a cost-sharing arrangement. And, and they came along very proudly and said, well, we had a cost-sharing arrangement, the company you're buying has owned all the IP from its inception. But when we looked at the agreement, the agreement didn't actually say that. What it said was, as a result of the cost-sharing arrangement, the two companies will pay X and Y, but one company ends up with all of the ownership rights and the IP that's developed. And then it subsequently transferred the IP to the company we were buying. Uh, so the cost-sharing arrangement that they'd spent a lot of time, the, the contract ran a vast number of pages, about 100 pages but it didn't work. And the, pro the reason it didn't work here was that we trigger a degrouping charge, of course, when we buy the company. Now, this was very expensive for that particular client because our client refused to proceed with the deal because of the potential tax liability arising. And it got changed into an asset deal rather than a share deal. We talked a little bit about general principles. And general principles uh, can be quite useful. But what you find more and more these days is that many jurisdictions are starting to offer specific incentives to encourage R&D activities in their particular jurisdiction. And the reason for this, of course, is it promotes growth in their jurisdiction, it attracts investment to their jurisdiction, 
boosts their economy. And these incentives can be quite valuable. And what they will be is an important consideration in designing and structuring any development program that you end up putting together. Because where you have a multinational group, you have choices as to where you carry on your R&D. I'm sure anyone with a multinational group would recognize this. Now, we have a client that's got development centers in the UK, Ireland, the US, and Singapore. It can choose where it spends its R&D dollars, or pounds, or euros, or Singapore dollars. And in determining where it spends its dollars, it should look, and it will look at each of the incentives that it gets in those jurisdictions to see whether that is the best place, the most cost efficient, the best tax result it can get. And you will look at, it's important to look at two, two features here. One is the R&D incentive itself. The other is the R&D, uh, sorry, the IP regime for exploiting the IP once it's developed, which we'll get onto a little bit later. Now generally the, uh, the incentive is in the form of an enhanced deduction. So you'll get a, a deduction of greater than 100% for the R&D expenditure you incur. But sometimes you will be able to get an additional incentive in that the government will actually buy back your excess deductions for cash. Now generally the way this works is that the, the cash payment will be less than the benefit of the R&D credit had you hung on to it and used it against your income going forward. But it's quite attractive to get you know, cash in your hand, especially for, for early stage companies. So to pick an example, I've, I've picked the UK, somewhat unsurprisingly. Uh, and the UK regime is quite generous. So for a small and medium sized company, which is essentially less than 500 employees, an annual turnover of either less than 100, and in either an annual turnover of less than 100 million euros, or balance sheet assets of less than 86 million euros. From the 1st of April this year, you can get a tax deduction equal to 225% of your qualifying expenditure, which is quite a generous incentive. Although it is subject to state aid approval, but I don't see, I don't see that as a as a major issue. Now this all sounds pretty good. So, what activities does it cover? Well, I think as Susie mentioned, you basically need activities which achieve an advance in science or technology. And you can include direct costs, which we'll chat about in a minute, but you can also include indirect costs, indirect activities. So the person, the cost of the person dealing with the payroll of the R&D uh, workers, uh, the cost of cleaning the lab, can, you can claim the uh, incentive but you can't claim the cost of cleaning the rest of the building. And again, the R&D doesn't even have to succeed. You know, if you fail, you can still say you've achieved an advancement, as by failing, you identify something that doesn't work, which, which is great. <laughs> if, only I, if only I could apply that in my work. But the IP, of course, has to be relevant to the trade that's carried on by the company. Part of the reason for the incentive is to encourage uh, UK trading. Now, if we look, look a little more closely at the type of expenditure that qualifies, uh, if you're doing in-house R&D, you can claim the cost of your staff, directly employed staff or externally provided. You can claim materials or other consumables. You can claim other payments, for example, if you're making payments to clinical trial volunteers. And you can even 
claim payments to subcontractors who are doing the R&D on your behalf. Uh, there's no geographical restriction, so that a non-UK branch can carry out the work, providing, of course, it's for the benefit of the UK trade. And, of course, capital expenditure doesn't qualify. Now, if we just look at these a little more closely, uh, the cost of staff is included. And essentially, your staff must be directly engaged in carrying out R&D activities. And if your staff member isn't directly engaged 100% in carrying out R&D activities, you have to do an apportionment to determine the time spent on R&D and the time spent on other activities, which you'd usually justify by the preparation of timesheets or, or something like that. Uh, as a practical matter, HMRC find it difficult to accept that anyone can be engaged full-time on R&D activities. So that's, that is something to keep in mind. But as I said, timesheets are quite important. Uh, Self-employed consultants don't count as they're not directly employed or externally provided. And it is important if your staff are employed by other group companies to make sure that they fall within the externally provided criteria. And where you can get caught out on something like this is, for example, where you have a, a central HR function that just does the work. Uh, materials and consumables, again, you split them between R&D and other activities. So what's that? Fuel, power, water, etc. Software, uh, if you buy software for use solely in your R&D activities, 100% of it benefits for the enhanced deduction. Otherwise, you're back to doing an apportionment. If you have a subcontractor, you don't, he doesn't need to do standalone R&D work. If he's an unconnected subcontractor, you can claim relief on 65% of the payment. If he's a connected subcontractor, the relief's on the lower of the payment you make to him and the relevant expenditure of the subcontractor, so it effectively tracks through. And an unconnected subcontractor can elect to be connected for these purposes. So, all sounds pretty good, really. Um, there's also the cash payment. And this is a straightforward cash payment from HMRC, which is equal to about 25% of the expenditure. I think with the changes in the tax rate, it's now something like about 24.72 or something like that. And as I said, it's not quite as valuable as waiting to use your deduction, but you get your cash up front. And it is incredibly attractive for um, startup companies, early stage growth companies. Large companies aren't, aren't left out of this. They get a broadly similar relief. Uh, they get 130% deduction, but they get no cash repayment. Just to show that I'm up to date with everything, the recent budget, the Chancellor announced the introduction of a new tax credit. And what this is going to be is an above the line tax credit uh, for R&D. It's going to have a minimum rate of 9.1%. Uh, Loss-making companies will be able to claim a payable credit, and it's intended to apply from 1 April 2013, with consultation on the precise terms, including the rate going forward. Uh, again, this is just a further attempt by the government to make the UK an attractive place to carry out your R&D activities. It will allow large companies to benefit from a cash refund. And part of the reason for doing it is that it's an attempt to make the tax credit part of the cost calculation of an R&D project. So that it impacts the internal budgets of an R&D company rather than simply being a tax adjustment. And this is intended to help in influence decision making before a project starts 
rather than just being an afterthought of a, um, as a tax adjustment later on. And this again is hope that by the government that it will encourage more R&D because it will make the, the overall cost of your R&D project when you're doing your budgets a little bit cheaper. Now, it's a laudable, a laudable attempt, but I query 9.1% doesn't exactly sound that generous to me. And especially if you have choices that you, have, you can make as to where you carry out your R&D. Um, if I look at Ireland, for example, Ireland will give you 25% of uh, a deduction for your R&D expenditure above a base year of 2003. In addition, the Irish will have a, have a general corporation tax rate of 12.5%. You just get that 12.5%. There's no complicated formula to go through. There's no hoops to jump through. So it does make the UK a bit more attractive because you've got your 9.1% and you've got the pattern box, which we get onto. But query is as good as Ireland, where you get your 25% and 12.5% without any hassle. Question probably more for you than me, but it is a it is an interesting one. Now, talking about incentives, I, I have to talk about the patent box rules. Um, many countries offer you incentives, as I've mentioned, to encourage encourage investment and exploitation of R and D. The UK the UK has a patent box regime, which is coming in soon. Uh, the Netherlands has a patent box regime. Luxembourg. Uh, which we'll talk about a bit later, gives you an exemption for a portion of your income design, derived from exploiting patents, as does Belgium. So you, you, have, you have a number of different uh, favourable tax regimes that you can look at when choosing how and where to exploit your IP. But the UK has gone for patent box. And again, as I've said, it's, a, it's an attempt to make the UK a more attractive place for tech companies. Now, under the patent box regime, company will be able to elect for a 10% rate of corporation tax on profits earned from qualified patents. 10% rate applies from 1st of April 2013, but the benefits are phased in over five years. So for 2013-14, you get 60% of the benefit. 2014-15, you get 70%. And if my maths are right, you get 100% in 2017-2018. And the reason for phasing it in is that the regime's quite wide and covers both existing patents and future patents. So the quid pro quo for having the wider regime is the phase phasing into the benefits. Now, the 10% rate applies to royalty income earned directly from qualifying patents, which are owned or exclusively licensed by a company. So for a single company, that's quite easy to determine but it might be a little more complicated on a group basis where the IP is owned by, sits in a number of companies. Uh, qualifying patent is a UK or EPO patent and also patents issued by certain EEA countries work to a similar standard as the UK. It doesn't include patents from other countries, so it won't include US patents, for example. They cannot benefit from the patent box regime. And the 10% rate also applies to what's called embedded income, which is income earned from the sale of products incorporating an invention covered by a patent. Uh, to determine the amount of embedded income, there is an extremely complicated formula. 
which will make my colleagues in the accountancy profession extremely well off. I've sat and tried to work through an example, and I got through about four pages of calculations, applying the various uh, notional deductions that I have to take into account, and it is the formula is horrendous. And I think that's probably the main weakness of the pattern box regime, as there are other regimes which will give you better benefits, but won't put you through this, this formula to, to get your deduction for your embedded pattern, to take advantage of the embedded income. Now Luxembourg, I mentioned, has a lower rate of tax. It's got a simpler calculation. Uh, the benefits are available in Luxembourg to the economic owner of the IP. So you don't need to be the formal legal owner. So it will be sufficient in Luxembourg for a company if it has an exclusive license to exploit IP in a particular territory. It also applies to the Luxembourg regime, applies to IP developed by Luxembourg companies, and also IP acquired from foreign entities, even if the entity is related. It, it's a much simpler regime. It's probably a bit more generous. The Netherlands patent box gives you 5% rate of tax. Uh, it applies to patents, but where you don't have a legal patent, you can still get the benefit of the patent box in Holland if the tax authorities can, will, are prepared to issue you an R&D declaration. And of course, in Holland, you can benefit from advanced rulings, so you can get certainty, which is always good in, in the tax world. So we've talked about creating your own IP. We've talked a bit about the incentives for creating IP, exploiting IP. Next one is really acquiring IP. And again, the key issue from a tax perspective is to get a tax deduction for what you pay for your acquisition. And you can acquire IP outright through purchase, or you can acquire it through a right to use. You can acquire it by way of a license. If you have an outright acquisition, the tax relief is available by way of amortization. Uh, it's either pursuant to the accounts, or you can make an election for a fixed rate, uh, which is a statutory relief. The fixed rate election you'd only really use if you don't amortize your IP. Uh, for example, an unregist unregistered trademark. Uh, the rate's fairly low, I think it's only about 4%. The company's granted a license, then provided the royalty payments are recognised in the accounts, you should get a tax deduction when the royalty payments are made. Where the distinction can become a bit blurred though is where the terms of a license are effectively similar to the sale of the IP. So if they have a license which is an exclusive, irrevocable, irrevocable worldwide license, in that case, if you have a lump sum payment, it's similar to a lump sum payment for an outright sale. And in these circumstances, you have to look at the basis of the payment. And what you can do is draw a distinction between a lump sum payment, which allows the acquiring company to make a certain amount of use of a product, and a lump sum payment, which allows a company to make as much use as, it's li as it likes. The first is a royalty, which will be spread over time on, the, on that basis. The latter's an acquisition, and that'll be amortised. And again, I try to think of a good example to demonstrate the difference here, or to demonstrate this. And the best one I could come up with was milestone payments, uh, which you often find in the pharmaceutical industry. So if you're carrying, carrying out clinical trials, they're highly speculative. So you'll have low, low initial payments, and then higher payments when you have successful phase one, phase two trials, etc. Now the payments made on this basis can't be a payment for the use of a product, as at that point there is no product. So they can't be royalties. 
you know, they're more likely a series of part payments to acquire the IP. I think the bottom line in, in, in all of this is the tax treatment to a large extent just follows the accounts. I, I, could have, I probably could have just said that at the start and spared you the last half an hour of me rabbiting on. But that's, that's really what you look at. The accounts are really the starting point for all of this. We've talked a lot about how IP is defined for the tax legislation purposes and also, as Mike has explained, how general tax principles apply in relation to R&D and the acquisition of IP. And in many ways, we have, in doing so, already touched on the concept of commercialising IP. Um, but I'm just going to speak briefly about the set the scene and then Mike's going to explain some further um, tax treatment. So, obviously, used by a company that's own IP is the easiest way in which it can commercialise it. But there are other options, as we've heard today. On this slide, I've just put out some examples of companies which have made the decision to either licence their IP or dispose of it through sale. And in most cases on this slide, the IP concerned represents the crown jewels of the business, fundamental to the business concerned. Um, the exceptions, I would say, are the AOL patent portfolio and also um, Samsung's disposal of manufacturing arm. In those cases, the company identified an IP asset which was not core to the business and it was able to carve that off and sell it off to elsewhere. Of these two options, the licensing model does provide some certain advantages for companies, allowing, um, allowing market penetration that was not otherwise available, for example. So commercialising IP sounds like a great idea, as we've heard, and there's, there's wonderful tax advantages. But from an IP perspective, there are considerations to think about before making that decision um, to, to do that. And I've just put up on the slide some of the four stakeholders that really need to be considered when making a decision of how to commercialise the IP. Um, legal is obviously on there and would say that we were very important um, to protect and enforce IP rights and also for tax structuring. But perhaps the most interesting relationship on the slide is that between the business and the technical side. So it's not only important to have a technical understanding of the IP asset and its opportunities, perhaps even its application for a industry, <coughs> but to marry that up with the business objectives and make sure that by licensing or disposing of the asset, you're not in any way hindering the business operations themselves. Perhaps an, a, a good audit exercise to do is to think about what IP is fundamental to the business and where there are aspects of the IP assets that can be sort of carved off and moved on elsewhere. In that way, you don't end up spending money protecting and enforcing, maintaining um, rights that are not, not necessarily advantageous to the business. So if the decision is made to license IP assets elsewhere, then the payment arrangements need to be carefully thought through. And to a degree, Mike has already touched on these points in his discussion about royalties and the payment structuring of the pharmaceutical company example. I mean, the most obvious example that springs to mind is a royalty in relation to, for example, the sale, a percentage of the sale of the product, um, perhaps for a trademark license. But there are alternative structures available, such as an upfront payment or a combination of the two. And the important point to note here is that the royalty arrangements or other payment arrangements do need to be tailored for the particular IP asset. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Now I'm going to pass back to Mike, who's going to talk a bit further about taxation of the commercialisation of IP. And I've come back to find that Susie's got a whole pile of interesting pictures on her slides. I feel, I feel my slides are a little dull. 
by comparison. But hopefully we'll make it up with content. Um, exploitation of IP, we talked about, uh, can either be receipt of royalties or one or more lump sum payments. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm banging the same point here, but again, the taxation of income generated by exploiting IP is subject to tax on the basis of revenue recognition in the accounts. There's really not a lot more to say about that. Um, so what might be more interesting to chat about is cross-border royalties. Because if you're paying royalties cross-border, uh, you'll find often there's withholding tax issues. Sometimes withholding tax can be quite substantial. Uh, the USA is 30%. Australia, my, my home country, is 30%. And these can be significant amounts of cash. They can possibly lead to significant uh, tax costs which can't be recovered, double taxation in some circumstances. So if you've got cross-border withholding tax, uh, you can eliminate or reduce that by relying on a tax treaty. Now, if a tax treaty benefit is necessary to reduce or eliminate withholding tax, it's important to ensure that you qualify and all the requirements for treaty relief are satisfied. Now, in particular, the company which looks to claim the benefit must be tax resident in the relevant country. Secondly, the company must be the beneficial owner of the intellectual property. And thirdly, your company must be structured to ensure that any limitation of benefits clause uh, doesn't deny you the tax relief, treaty relief. Our limitation of benefits clause is essentially uh, a clause which many and an increasing number of new tax treaties include, which basically say, if you set up a company solely to claim the benefit of the tax treaty, then you can't have the benefit of the tax treaty. And what that aims at, in particular, are companies that don't have any real substance in a jurisdiction. Uh, what I would call a brass plate company, which is a company which has a nice brass plate on a door somewhere, no employees, a couple of directors who might be accountants who play some very minor role in running the company. Um, and I'm going to talk about these a little bit more later when we talk about IP holding companies. I couldn't really talk about exploiting IP, IP without briefly touching on VAT. And what you find is that the general VAT rules apply. So VAT is payable on supplies of services, which includes, among other things, the grant, assignment, or surrender of any right. So therefore, uh, royalties are subject to VAT. If you supply your IP, your IP is supplied to another EU business, then there's no VAT chargeable, as it's a zero rate of export. If you supply IP to a non-EU business, it's also VAT free if it's outside the scope of that. Disposing of IP. Basically, when your IP is no longer recognized on the balance sheet, there'll be a disposal for tax purposes. Uh, basically, you get a credit or debit at that time, uh, calculated by comparing the proceeds with the costs and amortization. So effectively, any gain, want of a better word, on the sale of your IP is subject to tax. Uh, where this may be particularly relevant is if you're looking at establishing an IP holding company. Uh, your IP holding company, uh, you have to transfer IP to it if it doesn't already, if it doesn't own it from its inception. Um, so as an, in an ideal world, you try and transfer it at an early stage when it has little or no value. 
the usual reliefs are available. So you can transfer IP intra-group between members of your UK group on a tax-free basis, but you have to watch your degrouping charges. As the recent changes to the degrouping rules uh, don't apply to IP. So the changes to the degrouping rules are basically that for general gains, it's the transfer or company now which is subject to the tax, there's degrouping. But the old rules still apply to IP, so it's the transferee company, the company leaving the group, which suffers the tax. As particularly important when you're doing M&A transactions, and it's particularly important, it's, it's a good example of making sure, um, an example I'd like to talk about uh, in a deal we did, is making sure that whenever you do um, transfers of IP, wh whatever you do, it's important to make sure they're done correctly from a legal perspective, from a documentation perspective. Um, what you might find often is you come across businesses where the people are entrepreneurs and they're more interested in making money, which you can't, you can't really fault. But sometimes the legal niceties of what they need to do don't quite meet what is expected. Um, we did, a, we did a transaction for a client that was buying a company which had valuable IP in it. Uh, we asked them how the IP got into the company. And what they said was, that's all right, we transferred it in a number of years ago, about four years ago when it had no value. We said, that's great. Can you show us the transfer documents? Nope, sorry, we haven't got any. Okay what have you got to demonstrate that there was a transfer made? Are there board minutes? Yeah, I'm sure we've got some board minutes. Uh, they managed to dig out one board minute for the transfer or company, which had the throwaway line in it, the board are authorised to consider transferring the IP. And that was it. Now, we said, well, we looked at whether we could have a, an oral transfer of IP, which we couldn't, we decided we couldn't you know, justify that in the end for various reasons. The directors, of course, were very helpful. They said they'd write us a letter to say the IP was transferred four years ago and it had no value, dated today. We said, well, we didn't think that kind of really got us to where we wanted to be. They said, no problem. We'll get all the directors to write your letter. Uh, we said, very helpful, but doesn't quite get us to where we want to be. Uh, again, this led to the situation that our client refused to buy the company on the basis of a significant degrouping charge. Uh, the deal got turned into an asset deal. And the, um, the vendors, rather than selling their company and getting a, a nice little 10% uh, tax rate under the Entrepreneur's Relief Rules, got hit with a significant corporation tax charge in the company and then more tax, of course, distributing the proceeds out. And this was all because they hadn't done the documentation correctly at the time of the transfer, which would have avoided all those charges. Uh, so that, that's just a salutary tale and just a plea that whenever you are doing anything for transferring IP, disposing of IP, in whatever way it's done, please, please make sure you document it, you make, document it properly. And please don't offer just to write letters later on to say it was all done. Makes tax lawyers very unhappy. I think I think we're coming up to our, our break time. So
Uh, just like to touch on two, two points quickly. Uh, if you have transactions between related parties, uh, do remember that they will be deemed to occur at market value. And a big issue at the moment is transfer pricing. Some countries in particular have a keen interest in intra-group pricing. Uh, Japan, China, the USA, the UK, just to name a few. And the reason for this is that they sent big rewards. And I think given that the US managed to get $3.4 billion out of GlaxoSmithKline in respect of marketing intangibles, you can see why everyone's interested in transfer pricing and why they view it as a, as a big money spinner. And really, it's, transfer pricing is just ensuring that all your intergroup dealings take place on an arm's length basis. And this particularly includes where you might have a group R&D facility, for example, that's doing work for other group companies. Ensure that whatever work it does is done on an arm's length basis. And to go back to my salutary tale, whenever you do intergroup pricing, intergroup um, arrangements, you must document them properly. You must document the arrangements. You must document the basis for your pricing. Uh, there's nothing better when the revenue comes along to be able to pull out a, uh, a suite of documents which shows how you came to your intergroup pricing, the justification for it, and you've got proper arrangements in place. Where you run into a vast amount of problem is where you have no documentation and you're trying to argue that you did it on a particular basis, but you've got nothing to back that up. Can I just finish off by talking about some cross-border multinational um, arrangement? A typical scenario, you may have a parent company um, or an array of operating companies in different jurisdictions. Um, you may also have some specialist services or marketing companies. Um, you may have one or two R&D centers. You might have corporate joint ventures or other, or other agreements, or you might outsource a whole range of your um, R&D. So not an unfamiliar scenario, but in, in that um, scene, it may well be beneficial to set up an IP holding company. And by that, what we mean is just a single company in which all the IP that's used by the group as a whole is put. Um, and there are various reasons for doing that, benefits, risks as well, which we'll just go through now. Um, largely, it's, a, it's one of those areas where you need to do a, a, a detailed cost-benefit analysis. Um, so th this is really the sort of thing that we, we, we're thinking about. So you've got a, a parent company, you've got an array of operating entities, you might have an R&D company, you might have outsourced R&D, and what you're doing is inserting an IP holding company in the middle of it all, all the IP goes into there, and then all these companies which use IP need to have a license, an intergroup license. All the companies which generate IP need to have a license, uh, sorry, a, a deal where it gets assigned on an ongoing basis into the IP holding company. Um, and that needs to, to cover also where um, R&D is outsourced, so it needs to flow up. And the reason, main reason for doing that um, is, is one, of, one of tax. Um, if you can structure it in a way where revenue earnings that are generated by the operating companies are shifted up to the IP holding company, and that's placed somewhere where the tax that's applied is a much lower rate, you're going to make big savings. I won't spoil all of Mike's um, talk on that, so I'll move on to some of the other benefits. Um, I mean that, that, what flows from that is, is, is the fact that you are moving some revenue around, and there are other benefits to that as well. You can move it in a way which is, is, is not just tax efficient, but also gives you an opportunity to 
uh, have it have it in, in, the, in the places that you want. Um, there are other benefits on a more practical basis of having, particularly if it's a very big company with a range of trademark, patent portfolio, maybe a lot of copyright work. Um, putting all of that into one place can be a much more efficient way of dealing with it. So you can have a single uh, team who are charged with looking after the IP of the group. There'll obviously be um, efficiency savings in terms of manpower. They'll be able to get things at better rates because of the size of the, of, the, of the portfolio they're dealing with. The other thing is, collecting it all together like that nearly always maximizes the value, or certainly increases the value. The, 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 the value of those IP assets is going to be enhanced by having them all in one place. Um, you can even look to securitize it um, or, or use it in other ways to raise to raise revenue. Um, and it also gives you good flexibility on disposals. So typical example where you have an IP holding company with a, which has all the group's IP, if an operating company gets sold off or a division gets sold off, you can look at the IP as a whole and decide what IP needs to go with that and transfer it separately. Or if there's a shared IP arrangement where you need to retain it for the other businesses, but the acquirer needs to use it, you can then put it in place license agreements, um, which means that you're protecting the IP of the group as a whole, even though you're disposing of parts of the company. Uh, thanks, Paul. Um, I think that I've got eight and a half minutes now to do justice to the entire topic of IP holding companies, um, which could be a bit of a challenge, but it's one I'm willing to accept. And we'll see how we go. Um, so one of the main, one of the reasons to establish IP holding companies, as Paul mentioned, is because you might be able to get some tax benefits from doing so. And the tax benefit, the main benefit, is to reduce your overall tax burden of the group. So a simple example, if you have IP solely owned by a company in a high tax jurisdiction, say the US, and you mainly exploit it outside the US, then your overall tax burden, your tax compliant costs can be reduced if the IP were owned by a company outside the US. Uh, non-US hold code situated in a lower tax jurisdiction. Uh, you can also benefit from tax incentives that we've discussed in various jurisdictions for the exploitation of IP. And you can also reduce your tax compliance costs. Uh, for example, if you have a multinational group that develops IP in a number of jurisdictions, it can be quite expensive from a compliance perspective if the group has to document and ensure that the transfer pricing rules in a vast number of jurisdictions are all satisfied. By concentrating your IP in an IP holding company, you can standardize your documentation uh, and you'll be reducing the number of different regimes you have to think about and comply with. Now, a tax savings can be greater if your IP holding company can add value in some way to the IP. Uh, maybe by providing additional services, or maybe it could assume some additional risks. And this will allow you to allocate a little bit more profit to your IP holding company. But it's important to note that the IP holding company has to have adequate financial and physical resources to justify any extra services being provided or the additional risks being assumed. Now, one question that I often get asked is, is an IP holding company a good idea? Is it always a good idea? Would I always say yes? And the answer is, well, not necessarily. Uh, partly it's where you want to exploit your IP. Partly it's the cost of transferring IP to your IP holding company. So, you know, we, if we have somebody that came along which had a single UK company, 
and they came out with this wonderful offshore structure where they were going to have their IP held in Bermuda. Uh, the IP was being developed in the UK. The IP is being exploited in the UK. Uh, and he sort of said, well, why, why do you want a Bermuda holding company, IP holding company? And they said, well, we thought it was a good idea to get it offshore. The answer is not necessarily. In, in that sort of situation, if your IP is developed by a UK company, exploited solely within the UK, you might be better, just as well off holding it in the UK company, getting the R&D incentives that you get for your development work. Um, and one thing to consider always is the costs of establishing and running an overseas structure. Partly this is uh, administering the worldwide licensing arrangements. Partly this is dealing with withholding tax issues. Partly it's making sure you comply with all the transfer pricing rules that uh, may be relevant. And there's also can be a fair amount of management time. Uh, in my example, we talked about earlier of the US company that set up the Bermuda cost-sharing uh, scheme. They ended up with an offshore structure that had a Bermuda company, a Dutch Antilles company, a Dutch company. And the guy, the CFO, basically spent his entire time on the road going around to make sure each of these companies was running properly to provide the, he was a director on each of these companies. And it cost, it cost the, the company a vast amount of money uh, just administering the structure. And in their case, the structure didn't actually work. So it was a bit of a, bit of a double whammy. Um, I would like to point out that it wasn't my advice that led them to do that structure. <laughs> in case any of you were thinking that, gee, he's giving you examples from his life here. It was an accounting firm, one that I shan't name. Um, just a few other issues to consider. We talked about earlier uh, withholding tax. As I said, it can be as much as 30% on royalties. So clearly, when you're establishing an IP holding company in a jurisdiction, you need to consider what the withholding tax consequences might be of any royalty payments that flow to the IP holding company. Now, as I said, this can you can often reduce the withholding tax or eliminate it with a double tax treaty. So, to get that, the company must be tax resident in the relevant jurisdiction. It needs to consider any limitation of benefits clause, and it needs to be the beneficial owner of the, the income, the royalty income. What tax authorities really hate are back-to-back -back arrangements, where you have a, a company in a, tax in a jurisdiction taking the benefit of the tax treaty, which is essentially nothing more than a conduit, where you often get this in financing transactions where Interest goes in, interest goes straight out, and there's no um, ability of that company to actually control the interest. Is it the beneficial owner of the income at that point? And you could apply similar principles to licensing payments going in and out. Is it the beneficial owner of the IP and the income that's coming in? Now, to get around a lot of these issues, the company will need real substance. And as I said, it's no, it's no longer possible to set up a company with a couple of local directors who are friendly lawyers or accountants and think that that's going to be enough to get your tax treaty benefits uh, to prove that you're the owner of the intellectual property. So what are, what are a few tips, a few top tips on substance? What you must have is there should be some directors with the experience or authority to make the major decisions that the company needs to take, your IP holding company. These should be made in board meetings in the local jurisdiction. 
And this will also help you in proving that the company is tax resident in the IP holding company jurisdiction. If the, holding, the IP holding company should have employees with the requisite skill and knowledge to make the key decisions, and ideally I think it should have uh, a key technical person on a full-time basis in an ideal world. Uh, in the real world, this may not be commercially viable, but you should try and get as close to 100% for your key technical guy as you can. The company should also employ non-technical staff uh, as close to full-time again as possible. Uh, you can hire some local support staff, uh, secretary, office manager, uh, that sort of thing. And it's okay to use third-party service providers, uh, but you must ensure that you've got people with the requisite skill and knowledge to instruct them so that they can, they can properly advise, instruct the third party and understand the advice that they receive from the third party service provider. And as far as possible, you should carry on the major activities in the local jurisdiction. So to the extent there are major agreements to sign, they could be signed in the agreement. And again, ensure everything is properly and adequately documented. You need, you need a paper trail for what you're doing. Uh, where this is particularly relevant is in determining where is demonstrating that the company is tax resident in its local jurisdiction. There's absolutely no point in setting up an IP holding company in a jurisdiction for a particular tax reason if it ends up being tax resident somewhere else. So from a UK perspective, the UK will look at the central management and control of a company, which is the decision making at the highest level. That generally tends to be the board of directors. So what you need to ensure is that your board of directors meets regularly in the local jurisdiction of your IP holding company. You have to ensure that the major decisions are taken in the board meetings in that country. You have to ensure that the board doesn't merely rubber stamp decisions made elsewhere. For example, there are pre-drafted pre board minutes. And again, it's important to document all of that and to, to show that that's where decisions are really being made. The next point to think about is any anti-abuse rules. And anti-abuse rules appear in a variety of forms. Uh, Switzerland, for example, has a specific set of anti-avoidance laws, anti-abuse rules. Uh, many companies have CFC rules, uh, which are technically anti-abuse rules. And they're adopted by high-tax countries to combat the use of low-tax jurisdictions to reduce tax payable. The UK has a series of CFC rules. Uh, you read about them in the paper, about why companies are fleeing the UK to set up elsewhere, just simply to avoid them. Uh, usually, you should be able to fall within an exemption, such as a trading exemption where the company carries on a real business, uh, or a motive exemption where there's no, there's no tax avoidance. But interestingly, what the UK has done is set up an IP exploitation exemption, which is extremely beneficial for UK companies that want to establish IP holding companies. Now, to benefit from this exemption, you need a business establishment in the jurisdiction of residence. So that means you need staff there, uh, premises, etc. The main business of your CFC must be to exploit the IP, exploitation of IP. The IP and the CFC must have minimal connection with the UK, although there's some question about whether the CFC requirement uh, will remain. Now, looking at the IP, to satisfy this, the IP cannot have been held in the UK in the preceding six years. Uh, the R&D cannot have been done 
by a UK connected person or paid for by a UK connected person. In addition, you can't do significant maintenance or enhancement of the IP by a UK connected person or paid for by a UK connected person. One thing which is still a little unclear is what is meant by significant enhancement. I don't think it would. Um, I think what they're really trying to do is, if, it, if it's contract R&D, I think that should be okay. Uh, we'll see how the final CFC rules pan out. But it's not really what it's, I don't think it's what it's really directed at, to be honest. Um, what is significant? I suspect significant will be less than 10%. Could be 20%. No, we'll have to wait and see. Now, there, there are a number of factors you need to think about for your in, in setting up and running your IP holding company. Ah. I'm just going to interrupt you momentarily. Um, I'm in full follow. Let's stop the tax walk for a minute. Um, so, not to let Mike have all the, uh, all, all the issues on the tax side, um, you may well have convinced Mike, your FD, might be saying, right, let's go for it, I can always something this is the way forward. Just wanted to flag up, there are more things to think about um, as part of the cost-benefit analysis. So, if, you, if you're jumping in on the IP, if you have a holding company, what IP are you moving? It might be easy to identify the patents and trademarks, the registered stuff, but actually, and you're also going to include, as Susie found out earlier, the know-how, the copyright, the database rights, all this sort of stuff, and who owns that? If you've got a, a, a dozen operating companies um, in your group, where is it being generated? And how do you pick it all up? Um, and is that stuff that you identify actually assignable? There's going to be different rules in different jurisdictions. Classic example, copyright generated by German employees can't be assigned. You can't pick that up and be interactive with the company. You need to come up with other ways of doing it, maybe some sort of license system. Um, the other thing is, once it's there, you need to record the transfer. So go around to all the relevant um, IP uh, Registries recording the transfer, so they're getting the right name, um, and, and that the expense and time and, and uh, hassle that involves should never be underestimated. Um, the next things is, is is you're looking once the IP is in there, you're looking to license it out. So again, as a matter of law, when you're licensing the IP into certain countries, is that is that possible? You've got to do the uh, the paper trail, as, as Mike refers to, putting in place all the <coughs> licenses. Uh, making sure that they actually do the job that you ask them to do, the revenue gets shifted in the right way, the licensees are able to get the rights that they need to do their job. Um, and a couple of traps at the end. Don't forget to pick up what's going to happen tomorrow, so the future IP that's generated, IP out of R&D centres. You don't want to be continually having to recreate new documentation to keep sweeping it up. It should all be built into the IP, uh, the intergroup licences. And the last thing is, uh, is, it, is, it, is a great trap to, to, to avoid. If you've got a system where you have licensees who are um, entitled to use the IP in certain jurisdictions, they may not be able to sue for infringement and they may not be able to um, take action. Then you're a parent company or a rather IP holding company, which may not be able to show it's suffering damage directly as a result of the infringement of those jurisdictions. So you have a bit of a, a gap there. It can all be dealt with um, under the licenses. It needs to be thought about on a country by country basis um, and, uh, and not missed. Back to tax. Thanks, Paul. Um, I think, as Paul mentioned, one of the important things to note is that 
when you're looking at a jurisdiction for an IP holding company, it's really important to be able to enforce your rights if the IP is there. Um, there's no point establishing an IP holding company if people are just going to rip off your IP and you can't stop them. Uh, we've gone a bit over, so the last point I wanted to talk about was just IP holding company jurisdictions. I've put a map of the world on this. I don't know why. There we go. Um, there's a number of jurisdictions. Uh, a few of them are here, the UK, Ireland, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, your, your typical tax haven. Um, they, all, they all have different regimes. They all try and incentivize countries to, to establish their operations there, to establish IP holding companies, to establish development R&D centers. Um, I think Ireland is quite a good one. I think Luxembourg is excellent depending, of course, on whether you have staff that you can put there and um, you know, what you can put in the way of substance in that particular jurisdiction is relevant. No, 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 it's good to see a representative of the Swiss Trade Association here. The reason, the reason it's not on the list is that when my secretary typed up the list from my article, she neglected to put Switzerland in. So um, what I was going to say was you've all got or will get a copy of my article on this, which talks in more detail about the various jurisdictions. Uh, that does have Switzerland in it. So I do apologise, but thank you for pointing that out. Always good to get mistakes pointed out. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. No, no, Switzerland, Switzerland is, is another good jurisdiction. Um, what's particularly attractive about Switzerland is you can end up with a very low, uh, you can reduce your cantonal tax to nil by establishing in Zug or somewhere like that. Uh, and you can get quite a low federal tax rate in Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland has a good range of tax treaties as well. Uh, it has, with, it has a beholding company regime that you can benefit from. There's no specific exemptions, but it does it does work quite well as a <coughs> European as a European holding company. And we set up a Swiss company from major Japanese group, who actually employed a bunch of local residents to work there, and they were able to reduce their tax from about 35 to about I think about 14 or 15 percent using Switzerland. So Switzerland Switzerland does work well. Uh, from a purely IP perspective, Luxembourg's great, uh, Ireland's pretty good, but all of those countries have pluses and minuses, and as I said, a lot depends on where you can put your staff and you know, the other, the other non-tax factors. But as I said, if you'd like to read a bit more about them in my article, and of course if, if you want to talk to me about it or if you've got any questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you about all the juris these jurisdictions and more in uh, a bit more detail. I think I think that's, that's done for. We've, 